Hi there, and welcome back to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser, and every week I will speak with incredible people who share their lessons, experiences, and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. Hi there, and welcome back again to this week's episode. If you're new to the show, then please take a second to subscribe and even consider sharing the show with just one other person. This week I am joined by Bradley Wombolt. Bradley is an incredible principal associate with over 30 years experience in the energy sector. Bradley, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Yeah, thank, thank you, Michelle, and thank you for uh, for inviting me to your your podcast today. I really, really admire your work and what it is you're trying to do trying to do here. So, yeah, my name is Bradley Wombolt. I'm a principal associate with my own consultancy called Hawk and Squirrel Innovations. I started that about a year ago after 19 years with Suncor Energy in Canada, as well as 14 years before that with with Shell Canada. So yeah, 33 plus years with uh, oil and gas companies out of Calgary, Alberta and Canada in a variety of roles. I worked initially as as an engineer and eventually moved into operations roles. I've done functional roles in supply chain. And all throughout uh, my career, I really had unique and and, and great opportunities to work on uh, technology developments. So... When I was uh, when I was with Shell, I worked on a technology called uh, paraffinic frost treatment, kind of an esoteric technology unique to the oil sands in in northern Alberta. But it was a real game changing technology where where I had the opportunity to work right from uh, test tubes, literally test tubes in the in the lab in Shell's research lab, through to pilot plants worked as the uh, lead process engineer on the design of that facility don later to, to actually be the first operating superintendent of the of the commercial commercial plant so all the way from test tubes to full commercial operation it was suncor did a similar thing with uh, with the tailings technology a game changing te- tailings technology that eliminated uh, the need for tailings ponds uh, in in the oil sands business again Taking that from test tubes through to uh, through to full commercial operation in supply chain, did it did a number of kind of digital enterprise wide digital innovations around uh, buying etc. So you know fairly standard roles, but at the same time roles where I had the opportunity to do a lot of innovation internally. We we call it entrepreneurship as opposed to entrepreneurship, where you're able to do these kinds of things with the resources available to you from from the larger operating company. My last job with Suncor, I led a group called uh, Enterprise Technology. Uh, this was a corporate level disruptive technology group, technology development group, basically asked for by our board of directors to say, look, we see a lot of technology out in the world and we want to, we want to understand how, how we can participate in that. So I had the opportunity to stand up a group from scratch to look at these energy transition type technologies. So we looked at everything from uh, carbon capture and storage, uh, carbon capture and use. We looked at all the various uh, types of, of clean hydrogen. We looked at small modular nuclear reactors. We looked at nuclear fusion. We looked at renewable liquid fuels. So essentially, you know, carbon transition technologies 
adjacent to what what happens in an oil and gas company, so hydrocarbon manipulation and distribution, not so much in the in the electrification or solar and wind or other other better people working on that type of stuff, but there's a lot of technology adjacent to the skill set uh, that you see in oil and gas that can make a real difference in in our energy transition and our in our goals to net zero. So, so I stood up that group, ran that group for five or six years until my retirement from Suncor last year, and now with my consultancy Hawk and Squirrel, I continue to work in that space between you know the startup companies and the actual deployment of of commercial technology so there is a you know there's a sequence of events uh, from the lab through to engineering design through to startups you know marketing their engineering design through to uh, consolidating those into investable projects through to actually building and operating these uh, you know uh, typically very capital intense projects and there's, I, I, I believe there's a little bit of a weak spot between, you know, your entrepreneurs with a good, uh, solid engineering design and a good product to sell, and the $200, $300, 500000000 million project that would incorporate that. The people that know how to build mega projects are on a different wavelength than the people that have developed new technologies. So I've positioned my current my current role, my current consultancy to kind of bridge the gap because that's that's what I was doing. Uh, that's what my team was doing inside of Suncor was understanding how we could take those technologies and actually deploy them into existing infrastructure or more often than not into new value chains and and how can you how can you participate in new value chains? So. Can't step away from it. Yeah, I'm sure I'm retired, but there's no way I'm I'm leaving the industry right now, and certainly not leaving this very exciting space at this very exciting time. Sorry for the long interview or for the long uh, introduction, but yeah, that that's me. No, that sounds amazing. So, how did you get started off in the energy sector? Yeah, so it's, it, it was not. Uh, particularly magical. I, I graduated as a um, as a chemical engineer from McGill University. A bunch of uh, recruiters came to town, and you know the best offer I could see was uh, was from Shell at the time, Shell Canada. So I packed my bags and and moved to Alberta, and I've been here since uh, uh, since then, since 1989. So it really was just. You know, my, my father also worked in the oil and gas business, and he also uh, coincidentally worked for Shell. And I, I, I did see the security, right, at that time mm-hmm. of working in a, in, a, in a large company with the resources. You know, and as I said earlier, you know, you can approach innovation from, from a couple of angles. You know, as a, as a startup, you've got a lot of freedom mm-hmm. with bureaucracy, et cetera, but you have no resources, Right. And it's kind of the flip side to be able to work within a large organization where, sure, there are processes and bureaucracy and whatnot, but much better access to resources. So if you can, if you can decipher how to get, how to, how to work within that, within that system, you're not worried about resources in the same way that, that startups who have this great idea and unlimited flexibility, but no way to, no way to actually implement. So, you know, I found that as an, as an interesting you know, working within a large within a large company has its pros and cons, and you know, I just kind of stayed stayed with it. Okay, so what is the pros and cons of working in a in a large company? 
Yeah, well, as I said, I mean, the, the pros are unlimited resources, almost unlimited resources, mm -hmm. although that's not quite true. Of course, they are they are closely sort of uh, monitored. The, uh, the other thing is the training. I mean, Shell has an incredible post-graduation training program for, for hires. You know, so the first thing, one of the first things I did with them just as a junior engineer, I'm, so keep in mind I'm in Canada, so going to The Hague is a big deal. So all the way to The Hague and in the Netherlands for five weeks of technical training, right? So it's like you're beyond your university education, you get even more technical training. And and that and that was a that was the shortened course, right? Most um, expats do sort of a five-month program. So the training was incredible. The skill sets you're surrounded with, like the experience and the um and, and the people that are within these companies have tremendous um tremendous skill uh, tremendous things to offer in in terms of, of of their skills and advice and mentorship uh so those are some of the pros you know that the, the the cons are predictable anytime you gather tens of thousands of people together there need to be systems and processes and forms and and things of that nature and you do need to uh, you do need to learn to um, work within those systems, understand how decisions get made really, you know, build out your network so that you can have some influence. And that can take some time. I guess it's a, it's a con that comes with your access to, to funds. Okay. That, that's interesting. That leads me on to the next question. So who was your mentor? Did you have one during your Yeah. Career? Yeah, no, I... I uh, <laughs> I knew you were going to ask me that. And, it, you know, to be totally honest, if I was to go back into my career, I would have spent a lot more time developing mentors, that, like more deliberately developing mentors and more deliberately developing a network of, of uh, senior leaders. I think, you know, when you, when you start in a company, you're, you're nervous, right? You believe you need to know everything that uh, there's a little bit of imposter syndrome going on. Like, I can't believe they hired me to do this. Like, really? Don't they know who I am? So you're nervous to approach senior leaders. You know, as I progressed in my career, I, I came to understand that actually they love it, right? If you just call them up and say, hey, you know, I'm really interested in this area and what you do. Can I buy a cup of coffee? Can we set up a kind of regular cadence? Uh, because I, you know, I really think I can learn from you. I wish I had done more of that. You know, having said that, I had I had really good go bys uh, over the years. You know, people that uh, you know you could watch and eventually build a relationship. You know, I remember working for uh, working with, I should say, a fellow in a very similar position to where I am now, where you know he had worked many years in in a large company, was now doing some more more technical consulting, but looking at that approach, that the approach of of how do you take some of these very complex technical puzzles and be able to translate them into in such a way that that various other groups can understand? In other words, as we talk about energy transitions, we talk about you know our, our goal of net zero. It's actually an incredibly complex uh, balance between energy security and energy sustainability between emissions and between having enough energy to sustain our, our society. And a lot of those complexities are technical in nature. So you need a strong technical background, which this individual had, like doctor of engineering, PhD, but at the same time had the ability to, to communicate with 
you know, operators be able to communicate with executives, be able to communicate with project people, be able to communicate with finance people, because all of those groups need to be brought together to actually bring something new into 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 being, and they don't necessarily communicate well together. So, you know. I, th- I think that was kind of the biggest influence on what I'm doing today, which is a largely a translating role, right? Being able to go to a research university in the morning, uh, talk about thermodynamics or whatever, and then do a presentation in the afternoon to uh, to the executive table in such a way that it makes sense to both, right? Be able to talk to an operator who's describing the the challenge that they're having and understanding that that's actually related to the very technical discussion you were having in the morning at the university and being able to describe it and work with the operators. So I think one of my best mentors did that incredibly well, could sit in many different environments and be able to translate between the two. And and largely that is you know my definition of engineering, right? Translating science into technology, translating fundamentals into usable artifacts that that make a difference to our society. Okay. No, excellent. So what is the most challenging thing about your current role and how do you handle it? Yeah, so the most challenging thing about my current role is kind of the reason why I've set up my consultancy, and that is this, this gap between and I get I guess there's a certain frustration level in all of these great technologies that are that are being developed and and all of the resources going into creating new startup companies and new technologies and you see them all there, but then nothing gets built. I shouldn't say nothing, but you, you just don't see the level of deployment that we're actually going to need to get to um, some of the targets that we set for ourselves. And you know that gap is like, Oh, that's the space you know I want to work to make to make that connection. So, so you know the difficulty is getting those groups to under, understand each other, not um, uh, in, in a positive way, right? I mean, you will talk to small startups that'll say, "Oh, good gracious, these these large companies—they're so difficult to deal with. They're so bureaucratic. They're so risk averse. Like they're never going to do this. They're never going to do that, right?" Mm-hmm. And then you'll talk to large companies that go. You know, you know that's never going to work. They don't understand, uh, you know, how how we actually need to do things, finance the real world. Except they're dreaming, right? And bringing those together, saying to the small companies, well, I mean, you can sit and complain about how risk averse these companies are, or you can just recognize that's the way it is, right? If you, you know, I, I often say, like, if you're going to ask anybody to spend, I don't know, five hundred million dollars in the commercial manifestation of, of your idea, if you don't think they're going to have some questions, right? You're kind of, you're kind of kidding yourself. That's a lot of money, right? Yeah. And on the flip side, you have no idea how to efficiently and effectively spend and build a, build a $500 million project. That is a skill set all on its own. And you're going to need that skill set. So you're going to have to learn how to bring your idea to such a point that it's understandable by the people that know how to actually make it a reality. Don't complain about it. Understand it. Right? Understand what, what do they need. So imagine, okay, so you have a new hydrogen technology. That's great. It's like it looks like it works. 
quote unquote, whatever works mean. Um, looks like it's economic. Looks like you could build a, a reasonable size unit. If that's going to actually get built, you need to one day sit in a room with people that are allocating capital and talk their language. You're going to need to be able to say, we've de-risked this technology from a technical perspective to a reasonable level. It won't be zero because it's first of a kind, but to a reasonable level, and we can de demonstrate that. We understand how much it's really going to cost. We've had a professional organization come in, an engineering firm, and do a real cost estimate that, that you're going to believe, because you're not going to believe my cost estimate, right? You can, you're going to need mm -hmm. a third-party cost estimate. You've run the economics. You've run the sensitivities. You, you see, you see, you're now speaking their language. They're they're not interested in how excited you are about your technology. They're interested in whether that project holds up against all the other projects they have on their list that day. So if you can learn to do that, right? Mm. If you can learn to speak their language as opposed to trying to convince them to speak your language, you're going to have much more success, right? And then at the same time, what can you do with large companies to 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 essentially describe to them that there is this, you know, I believe there's this, this missing or this unrecognized function. And I use the word function very deliberately because I, I used to work in a function in the supply chain at one point in my career. If you think of a function as a, as a composite of unique and specific processes, tools, and skill sets, right? Mm -hmm. Like you don't run a supply chain organization the same way with the same people as you do a, an HR organization, right? Or mm -hmm. even an operation. So when I say function, that there's this missing function, I believe, in this techno-commercial space, in this translation of new technology opportunities into investable projects. So if you can start to describe that to the companies that you know, you really need to recognize that there is a process before this. Companies are process driven, right? They're all mm -hmm. this process links into that process and supply chain links into finance, which links into operations, et cetera. So if you can start to describe to them, look, this is there is a there is a process here that that's going unrecognized. And if you can understand that thing, these technologies that are sitting out there, if they work their way through that process, will will link to your processes, will link to your capital allocation processes, will link to your project execution processes. Mm -hmm. And you can have a better conversation between you know, these great ideas and and these and actually getting steel on the ground. I forget the question you asked. You you got me on my soapbox and I just keep going and going. No, but I I can't interrupt you because your your information is so valuable actually. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> If you were going to hire someone, what would make a great hire, in your opinion? Yeah, so hiring is an interesting one, and 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 um, you know, at the end of the day, it, it it comes down to to fit, right? Like, how well does a person fit in a particular role? I mean, I've I've sadly had to throughout my career terminate a number of people, and it's not typically because they're bad people; it's because they don't fit in the role. So. Insofar as your question would be about if I was to hire somebody somebody into this innovation space, either mm. entrepreneurship or, or entrepreneurship, to me, the key aspect would be willingness to, to learn, to continue to learn, to understand it's lifelong learning. It's not about getting your degree in high school and then just, or in university, and then just, you know, milking that for the rest of your career. 
you know, one of the best hires I did, and, and she may at some point be listening to this and she'll know who she is, but uh, one of the best hires we ever had was probably a little low on the experience scale. Like you, you reading the resume, you'd go, I'm not sure, right? Like, like this is, this, this is some pretty advanced work fairly early in her career. She came into the interview and said, look, I don't have much. We were hiring her into a biofuel space. She says, I really don't have much experience in biofuels. So in preparation for this interview, I took a course and I actually have some questions and ideas about, about biofuels and how they might work and how we might make them better. Right. So to me, that was like, okay, sold right there. This is an individual that wasn't going to come in and tell me why she was so good for the role that actually said, I'm willing to learn, right? And she turned out to be an outstanding hire uh, into our technology development group because it's all about, it is all about learning. And particularly in this space, you know, I've been thinking a little bit about this. It's like, you know, where are, where are the Renaissance people, right? Where are the Leonardo da Vinci's that could do this and do that and think this way and think that way? You really need a lot of that in that space, which requires you to be humble about what you already know mm-hmm. and willing to go out and learn and then willing to make those connections. So that's what I look for, for people working in this space, is that that humbleness, that willingness to learn, and also some comfort with ambiguity, right? Like the job you sign up for may evolve into something different. Um, we don't know how to solve some of this stuff. You, you need to be comfortable with that. I mean, one reason I really resonate with this this type of work is, you know, notwithstanding, I worked within very structured companies for, for many years. Mm. You know, I, I think I'm up to, or I think I was up to about 18 unique jobs that I had within within my career. And all but two of those, you know, in all but two of those cases, there was no incumbent. I was the first person to do that role. Right? If you think about, you know, all that work in technology, well, we were building not just the technology, we were building a new business unit within the company. So, you know, you're the first person. No one's ever done process engineering on this before. No one's ever been the uh, the operations superintendent in this plant before. Even supply chain was going through a consolidation. So that role was new. It wasn't like I was stepping into somebody's shoes and, and just, you know, following orders. It was like, okay, we have to reinvent this group. We have to think about how we're going to structure it and hire for it. And then obviously my last role with uh, enterprise technology, we were standing up a new team. So I, I have a high degree of uh, tolerance for ambiguity, and and that has served me well because, you know, those are the roles that I that I um, that I seek, and that's what I would look for in a new hire. And this particularly in this space, you know, I I had a I had a conversation once with a with a uh, executive, a senior executive about next steps in my career. You know, what do you want to do next? What do you what's your what's your next role going to be? Because you've been doing this 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 supply chain role for a while, and I said, well, you know, I'm not going to fall for that. Like, I'm not. That's a trick question. He says, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you you can't really tell me how we're even going to be organized in six months because we're always doing reorganization. So, so how am I supposed to pick a job when I don't even know what the landscape's going to be? So, what I do is I say, look, two things. Uh, what are my strengths, and what do I look for in a job? Right. So when you come to me with a proposal for my next role, 
here's what I'm looking for, right? And my particular ones, and they're different for everybody, my particular ones were, I want to I want to go somewhere where I have impact and influence. And that's, that's not necessarily linked to job level, right? There are some people in VP and EVP roles, they'd be roles I wouldn't, I wouldn't take in a hundred years because I, you know, I'd rather stick pins in my eyes than sit there and do the same thing day in and day out like we've done for 20 years, right? So influence and uh, impact, you know, I said, look, I'm I'm comfortable with, with ambiguity. I'm comfortable with standing new things up. And then as my throwaway comment as I walked out the door was, and you know, if you ever decide to do technology in a sensible way in this company, let me know because I got some ideas. And then three months later, they come back to me and say, okay, well, actually the board would like to do something in the technology space and it's new and, you know, it's going to have a lot of impact and influence. So how about it? And I said, yeah, that totally lines up, right? Lines up with my strengths, lines up with what what I want to do with my career. And, you know, if I had advice for people, you know, switching your question around to what would I hire, you know, the other an interview is a two-way street. So the interviewee is also looking, do I want this job? You know, the, the two things I've always asked my my people to think about is, is you know, think about where where do you want to end your career? Like it might be early, but think about your North Star. When you get to retirement, you want to look back on your career and say, that was fantastic because dot, dot, dot. And that answer is different for everybody. I had a great career because I got to the top. I had a great career because I became a technical expert in a place. I had a great career because I mentored dozens of people and 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 helped the new generation come in. I, I had a great career because whatever, right? So think about what it is you're trying to achieve with your career. And does this job get you closer or further away from that? And then does it play to your strengths? It's super important to understand what kind of innate strengths you have. And these are, these are not things, you know, like I do a good presentation or I do a good this, but some deep strengths mm-hmm. that, that are, that are kind of, you, that can be universally um, deployed in, in different types of careers, because that's what differentiates you. The strengths differentiate you, you know, your development when you first join a company is going to be all about closing gaps and getting to a, getting to a particular level of, of proficiency. But once you're okay at everything, you want to get super good at your strengths rather than continuing to work at the at the worst thing, you know, the thing that you're least best, least good at, because that just leads to mediocrity. You want to be recognized and continue to hone your strengths rather mm-hmm. than uh, just continue to work on your weaknesses. Again, I forgot the question, and you had me rambling on. No, it was it was about how. Yeah, no, I was so interested about listening to you because I was going to ask you, do you think it's easier to carve out a career for yourself as a technical expert in a larger company than it is in a smaller company? Um, That's an interesting question. I mean, I've never really considered myself a technical expert. I mean, I'm a chemical engineer with an MBA and, you know, I built my whole, my, my career around I had an executive MBA. I got my MBA late, but you know, I built my later career around connecting those dots, being able to explain engineering to business people and business to technical people. Um, so, as to whether that's easier in a large company or or a small company, I'm not sure. I think I think again, the distinguishing factors between those two environments: one is 
ultimate flexibility generalist. I do everything, but I have no resources or I have to find and dig and scratch for resources versus working in a more structured environment where my role is more clear, but it's also more constrained. But there are there are, there are resources available if I can figure out how to how to unlock them. So I think they're just different environments. A technical expert, you know, straight up technical expert out of school to develop new skills, probably easier to start in a larger larger company where you're surrounded by you know experienced people where you have access to training, etc. You know that might be the place to get started on the technical side. But on the other on the other side, if you want to get into some of this more connection, you can do that from, from either end. Okay. Because I was just wondering, because you've worked in quite, quite a few, a few amazing companies, large companies, do you think it's, it's more beneficial for a graduate to come out of university and try and go and work in their dream organization rather than maybe go to a different company that maybe have a really good training scheme and they could learn more about their trade and then maybe work up to becoming an employee in their dream company yeah i mean that's a that's a that's a tough choice right and and um because it's hard to know what to do when you when you leave university because you you might have this dream to to go and work in Shell or BP or, or whoever it is, but then so does everybody else. Yeah, well, so, so keep in mind, I, I came to my career at a very interesting time. Mm. I came to my career at the end of, you know, what you might think of as the Iron Rice Bowl, right, where you join a company, you're there for life. You know, like my father, he worked for one company for 36 years mm. and never, never even thought about leaving never even thought about like he said you really couldn't right like it just didn't work that way i i caught the tail end of that and worked through this transition where it became much more transactional to work with with any organization pensions changed you know the layoffs things of that nature made it so so there was quite a bit of transition over the course of my a, a transition in the relationship between the employee and the employer over time so Early on in my career, one of my more business-minded mentors recommended me a book called A Company of One. I don't even know if they still print it. It's a very thin little book, and it has kind of the very straightforward concept that, you know, you are a company of one. At, at the end of the day, Bradley Wombold is the entity that I need to be looking out for. Now, I will have employment relationships along the way with various other organizations. And if I have a contract, if you think of it more like my company, me, I'm contracting my services to this large company, uh, there needs to be a, a quid pro quo, right? Like I'm, I will work, you know, it's not like I'm independent to the point that I work against the company, but if I, because when I'm in there, I you, you have me, right? But at the same time, you do kind of need to look after your own development and your own, your own company of one. So, when you, if you were to get to a decision as you described, I would say, okay, well, what what makes the most sense for me for my com- for my company of one? This is going to be a, a back and forth. What am I hoping to get out of this relationship? Right? They don't they don't own you. It's a, it's a it's a business relationship. So mm-hmm. you work for them. 
for money and for other things. So I think those are all very, you know, uh, discrete and specific decisions as, as to where you are in your career at the minute, which is why it's so important to have that North Star, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you're, if you're a company of one with an objective, right? I want to, I want to achieve this with my career, with my company of one. And I'm presented with this option, right? Do I do a dream job right away or do I go try to get some training? You need to make the assessment, which is going to, in the long run, get me closer to that goal. If I don't have the skills, maybe I do need to, for a time, learn about that. Learn, learn the inner workings of a big company. Because someday when I have my dream job and I'm on the outside or I'm an entrepreneur, that's good to know. It's good to know how big companies work, right? And and how to be able to interact with them. So you really need to make that, you know, you end up where you end up based on innumerable small decisions you make along the way. You know, you're, you know the famous expression that, you can't change the weather. All you can do is adjust your sales, right? So the weather is the weather. The decision is the decision. How are you going to adjust your sales so that you keep going in the direction that you want and don't just go, don't just go in circles? So I don't have a good answer for your question other than to say, you know, keep, keep your eye on where it is you're trying to go and try to make the decisions to get you closer to your goal, not, not further away. No, I think that was a really good answer, actually. Thank you. So I just wondered, have you had any career disasters and how have you handled them? Yeah. So interestingly, I'm not, I'm not sure it was a career disaster, exactly what you mean by that. But, um, you know, I did have a, a, a rather startling situation when I was froth treatment uh, superintendent, the first one. Uh, shortly after we started up the f- facility, we had a very major fire. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the call at 3.15 in the morning, the unit is on fire. We've got 11-meter flames. Not everybody's been accounted for yet. You know, that certainly was a, a dramatic point in my career that, you know, that perhaps could have been disastrous because at the end of the day, I'm responsible for what, what happens. And we've had a major incident. By the way, everybody was was safely accounted for at the end of the day. So there were no uh, no serious injuries at all but considerable damage and six months downtime before we could get uh, some of these facilities rebuilt and started up. So obviously all eyes were kind of on, on me and my team at that point. And I guess, you know, what was, what was, what was important at that point and, and how getting through that, you learn a lot about leadership. Everybody's looking to you to see how you're going to react. Everybody's, you know, taking their cues from, from, um, your attitude to this so we took we just had to take a very pragmatic attitude in a very difficult environment you know when you start to get major insurance companies involved they're not much interested in this no fault just learn from it kind of thing they want to figure out whose fault it was right Mm. and you know how how you handle that like you're looking for people to throw under the bus or you're trying to deflect or whatever i mean they're going to take your cues from you and we took a very pragmatic approach we we you know obviously opened everything up we talked about the systems and the processes and where things broke down and by being able to describe you know the mitigations we had in place you know just really settle settle things down on that front it's like okay we see that you had everything everything together there were a number of 
number of factors that kind of lined up to make this thing happen. It's 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 more of an unfortunate exercise rather than a, than a, anybody's at fault. So turning that from a who's at fault to a you know how how can we systemically understand what happened and make sure it doesn't happen again, you know, in a very challenging and stressful situation, I'd say was was probably one of my uh, one of my most dramatic and impactful uh, parts of my career. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And, 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 and you learn from it, right? You learn from it that yeah, number, one, number one, the most important thing is, was everybody safe, right? And mm-hmm. once, once you've established that, the rest is, is, is somewhat more academic, right? Like I do not mm-hmm. want to be in a situation where I'm knocking on somebody's door to explain why somebody didn't come home. And then, you know, being able to describe how important that was to the team. And now we're just doing a thing, right? Now we we were we were fortunate that that, that that didn't happen. So now let's just get to work, figure out what happened, try to get some of the, the rhetoric and excitement out of this and just calmly go through our work and describe how we can avoid this in the future. Okay. So I've got one maybe final question for you. If you could turn back time, would you change anything? I, I've had I've had a fantastic career and and it and, and it's still going right. So I'm, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, I always I always did you know my north star. I always wanted to be end up in this space. You know, imagine myself uh, doing this this kind of consulting work, uh, just to be able to manage my own time and 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 work on things that are of interest only to me. A little less little less worry about the cash flow. But if I was to change one thing, it was it was something I mentioned earlier. I would have spent mm. more time on my network, particularly you know, moving companies. You got to reestablish networks, people that were your mentors and sponsors, etc. Within a large company, they retire, they move on, and it's a very fluid environment. So, and I think I might even have learned more faster if I had just overcome that essentially shyness of going up and it's not you know i'm not talking about losing right i'm not talking about you know at the company christmas or holiday party hey you know it's me and i'm great it's it's more about if there's an area in the company Mm -hmm. that that you think you might be interested in if there's a leader that you say i really like how they operate you know respectfully and humbly go up and say look i'm I'm really interested in what in what you do and how you do it, and and if you're amenable, you know, I'd really appreciate having some of your time just to to understand and talk about, you know, what your group does if that's what you're interested, how you got to to where you are, and and I think I think people would be surprised at how easy that is in the end, and how often the senior leader would actually appreciate that too. Because they they want to describe what they've learned, and they also learn a lot from you, right? They learn a lot about well, what's really going on now, because the organization is constantly changing. And when they were in that role, it was a different world. So it, it does end up being a two way street. And had I done more of that, I think I could have, as I said, learned learned more faster, and that would have been a better thing. I think so too. I think it's really important to have a to to seek out good mentors. Yeah, and don't and don't be shy. Like people, people know where you are in your career. They're not expecting you to have all the answers. And and you know, as I said in answer to one of your questions, one of the things I I admire most is an openness to learning. And if you're approaching this 
as an, as a learning opportunity, I think you find leaders would be impressed by that as well. I think so too. I think so too. So that's all the questions I have today. I would like to thank Bradley for your time. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening and see you next week. <laughs> thank you, Michelle. <laughs> I really enjoyed our discussion. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd like to gently encourage you to leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with another person. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or via my website, www.michellefraserconsultancy.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.